This is a podcast brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Mr John Davies, he was just an absolute gentleman. He was just the dearest person. He was actually the backbone of our business. What about a rice? Where's the money coming from? <laughs> Get back to work. If you met him in the street, he'd always say, and how are you today? Never wasted money. He didn't come to my wedding, but he gave me a substantial check. Oh my goodness, it was like the turn of the century. Oh dear, 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 oh dear, 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 he'd be saying to himself, you're going to hear him coming, you know. I, I would say he was a very influential person in the 40s, 50s and 60s and encouraged a lot of people to into those cattle breeds that he was involved in. You'd never strike another man like no. him. This podcast is all about John Stanley Davies, a gentleman who in 1969 bequeathed his estate to the University of Adelaide, one of the most significant bequests in the university's long history. Mr Davies spent his working life developing excellence in the strains of beef cattle. He never married. So when he passed away on Christmas Day in 1968, Prince Alfred College and the University of Adelaide learned they'd been bequeathed the $2 million estate on a one-fifth to four-fifth share. It included both Mundunny, near Spalding, and a 450-square-mile pastoral property, Moralana, near Hawker. For 42 years, the university held on to this estate, but then sold it in 2011 along with the Martindale property at Mintero, bequeathed by the Mortlock family. I'm Annabelle Homer, and in this podcast, you'll get to know about this generous benefactor through the people who knew him, worked with him, and cared for him. You'll hear how he transformed the beef shorthorn industry in Australia, an industry he devoted his entire life to. And you'll hear what the university did with these properties over its 40-year tenure, and once they were sold, how it has built on that investment. Firstly, a little bit of history about the Davies family. They were one of South Australia's pioneering families and for generations had been actively engaged in the production of both beef and wool since early settlement days. J.S. Davies' grandfather, Edward, arrived in South Australia from Wales in 1850. He carted copper from Burra until 1853 when he married and settled on a small farm near Mintero. In 1869, he bought the first 2,000 acres of land a few miles from Spalding, which would eventually grow into the 18,500-acre Mundani property. Edward's son, John, took over in 1889 and was followed by his eldest son, John Stanley, who inherited the property after his father's death in 1948. John had two brothers, Reg, who inherited Yalawi, a property near Mundani, and Hartley, the youngest, who was killed in a train accident near Melrose at 41 years of age. Early in 1924, J.S. Davies established the Mundunny Beef Shorthorn Stud and devoted his life to his cattle and improving the genetics of the breed. We'll get more into his cattle legacy a bit later on. But first, let's learn more about J.S. Davies, what it was like to work for him. My full name is Peter John Maguire. We got involved with uh, Mr John Davies and started baling hay for him. 
G'day, this is Laurie Nancaro. I work at Mundani fencing and, and, and also working on the helping at the farm with the Maguire boys. Peter Maguire worked for Mr Davies during the 1960s and Laurie Nancaro was part of that team. I caught up with both of them on the fence line at Mundani to get an insight as to what it was like to work for the man. Well, I got on really well with him. What I could find with Mr Davies was if you did the right thing by him, he'd look after you. I found him very, very honest and that he's a quiet old gentleman. But when we're doing the hay and that, and uh, as I wondered about the staff on the place because they only had the two old gentlemen (laughs) that we know, then he'd ask if we could help with the lamb tiling. Who were the old... Old gentleman Arthur that Vivian you knew. And, uh, Who was that? Sorry, old Laurie? Arthur Vivian. And Jack Mullins. Jack Mullins, that's it. That was the old two that's gents. That's two old fellas. And uh, we ended up doing in the scene lamb tiling, all this sort of thing. And he'd ask, could you do it? You know, can you do mm. this? Can you do that? Oh, yes, uh, we can do it. It's the worst thing we ever did because he, we couldn't get out of it <laughs> then. <laughs> It just it just went on and on and on every year from there on. But he gave us a lot of work, actually, in our business. He was the backbone of it in the early days. Exactly. Yes. So he gave you a start? Yes. Actually, he got us into farming. Yes, and, right. and And that's where it graduated from there. Yeah. Was he a generous man? Did he pay you well? Oh, yes. Oh. I'll, I'll give you an instance. I... Because in my days, I, I used to do the book work for right. our firm and uh, one thing and another. And I'd taken the account over to him and he'd say, Peter, you're not charging enough. Really? And that's as true as I sit here. And that's the sort of gentleman he was. But if you tried to put anything over him, the work just vanished. I know that with others that have done it there and their contracts just ran out. And did but, you did you start charging more when he said that? Oh yes, he gave me an idea. You know, he said you've got to make this thing pay, and that's the sort of gentleman he was. He's a fantastic man in my book. Laurie, yeah, what's your experience with him? Yeah, I was a pounder chain for me fencing. I tried him out once. Oh, what about a rice? Where's the money coming from? <laughs> that was the end of that. <laughs> so you never got your raise. Nah, nah. Get back to work. You're doing what I want done. You know, where's the money coming? You're doing what I want done, that's all. That's all we'd say. Did you ever go up to the homestead? Did you ever socialise with him? I've been up the lounge a long time. Have you? Yes. Good, yeah. Yeah. Up the office. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Up in the lounge. Up on the lounge. When I was up in the lounge, old John, you wouldn't understand, I suppose. (laughs) I've been up in the lounge the whole time. <laughs> I can remember a case too that he had people doing bulldozing, dam building. I better not mention names. Anyway, people thought we can put it over him sort of thing. He used to take his old Jeep and then he'd trot around the place over the weekends and uh, he'd come up to see how this all this damn thing, this is what we call the willows up inside. 
here's the caterpillar dozers sitting up on the banks, motors ticking over because they're paid by the hours. And of course, in the Hallett Hotel, having a. Oh, were they? You see. So that was all right. He took notice of all this sort of man he was. Never said anything. Come along. They finished that job. That was it. Yep. And that's how he operated. If he would give you a job, if he trusted you, then. No way you'd get out of it. No, he'd leave you. (laughs) But. Anybody that tried to put over him, that's how he'd do it. Yet the job would just run out. He wouldn't say anything. No. He'd just cancel it. Do you remember anything of how he managed his property? Well, I can remember this quite densely. They uh, had some cattle down at, out in what we call Campbell's on the Campbell's south of Munda. Campbell's Kingdom. That's right. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, he sent... Well, I suppose I can use names. Ray Clark. Moss, uh, Moss Hallett. Yes. And uh, uh, I don't know whether old Murray was in Oh, it. yes, Murray oh, was yeah, there. Murray was there. Yeah. Was so he sent them down in the bottom to bring in these bulls. Heap of bulls. You see. Well... They got out there and they stirred the damn things up and they come back with no bulls but they had a a red Dodge truck, little 30 hundredweight yep. truck. Moss Hallett was in there. And the old bull charged it apparently because they had a, a hole in the door where his, his horn went into this door and they reckoned the truck would go like this. They packed up and come home, no bulls. Oh, dear, 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 oh, you're going to hear him saying it, you know. Yeah, that's no. right. So he got in his old, she- he had an old chef, just had the underweight thing he used to run around. He toddles out in the afternoon. Next day, he went out there and just quietly bring the Walked them home on his own and yeah. put them in the yard. Yeah. Never said anything. No, that's right, that's true. And that's how he was. <laughs> that's how he worked, just went along behind them. Yeah. Instead of bloody dogs and stock, Ray Clark would be... Stock whips. Yeah. And my lawyer to have dogs. Well, you can just see what had happened. Yeah. What was he like as a landholder, as a farmer? Was he was he quite progressive? Because we've heard that he did a lot for the cattle industry oh, and a yes. lot in the cattle industry. Yes. That's right. Stock. You, well, yeah. when we got involved, it was uh, sheep, fat lambs and wool. Yeah, they, they didn't have a lot of cattle, though, did he? No, a lot. Not, not a lot. But he used to show them, of course, he was very proud of his Herefords. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Herefords and Shorthorns, wasn't it? He had bought a Leicester. Bought a Leicester sheep. Bought a Leicester cross yeah. sheep up in Coanna. And he was, there, he was tickled pink about them. I seen him the next day after he'd sent some to the market. And he come there just real tickled. I topped the market. I topped the market when we crossbreds. He was real pretty used about Chris in the market with his crossbed. He had a merino use and bought a Leicester Rams. He was tickled pink about them. Yeah. Do you think he was a lonely man because he didn't have a wife or children? It uh, had to be. But he'd uh, get in his old bus <laughs> old and, and old uh, weekenders and he'd go chugging around and about 20 miles an hour was it. 
and he'd just chug around the country. And <laughs> that, Talking about that, yeah. you're going, Peter and Tom was working in the paddock around the road, and Pete said, for Christ's sake, going too fast, Tom in the tractor, W6 tractor farming. <laughs> he said, we'll pass John, going down the road. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember Peter saying it. <laughs> How was John considered in the community? Was he well respected? Was was he a good community man? He was, God knows how long, but he was always on the council yep. in Spalding. He was a councillor. Every Friday he'd go in to the council and he'd buy the plug tobaccos for the old Arthur Vivian and Jack Mullins. That's and that. As far as I know, that's all he did. Dulcie, uh, Peter's wife, is also here with us, with us today. And you had a bit to do with John Davies, just a little bit. What are some of your memories of, of him? Well, he's a very nice, elderly gentleman. And if he saw you on the road, he always rode to you. And if, if you met him in the street, he would always say, and how are you today? He was a very nice old gentleman. Where we lived at that stage was on a T-junction in the middle and, of course, he used to go past. He'd call in to Dulcie and say, where's Peter? Yes, it was always you see. <laughs> And Peter? he used to suffer with gout. Yes. And he kept hobbled in to Dulcie there. And she used to make him a cup of tea or whatever, see. And he'd hobble in there and he'd show her oh. uh, his foot. And, all this and and I said to him, now I said, I'm not being worried, but if I got a bowl of, of warm water, would you let me soak it? And he looked at me and he said, well, yes, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's it. And I never knew anything more. Well, <laughs> I did it. And he went out and he said, thank you. He used to come out sometimes to you. And he'd have his gout and he'd be walking along, oh, dear, 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 oh, dear, dear, dear. He'd be saying to himself, you're going to hear him coming, you know, poor old fella. Yeah. Oh, his leg but was awful. Oh, it was a mess. So when Mr Davies started to get ill, get old, and obviously he wasn't, as much, he wasn't active on, on the place as much as he used to be, who, who helped Mr Davies on the farm? Ray Clark, Murray Malloy. Yes. Ray Clark done a lot for him. Yes, Ray Clark did at, a lot. At the finish, you know. At the finish clean, and... Uh, cleaning him up and all that. Oh, Murray, Murray Malloy. Yeah. He, he came there. My parents were over the hills, right. uh, were managing a property, and uh, Murray Malloy, and the old woman, as he called her, <laughs> came there trapping rabbits. And then when they finished there, they, Dad sent him over to Mundani to Mr Davies, and he, he went on there trapping rabbits for years. Wish we had photos of it. He had an old Dodge 4 buckboard yep. tray top, and he used they come from up at around Corn, I believe, and they used to put the horse on the back of this old Dodge buckboard, buckboard. and tow the jinker, his cart, behind it. And they come all the way from down the corn down here and that's what they got around in, you know. It was unbelievable. And they used to camp in down on the Shearer's Quarters at Mundani 
<laughs> and then Murray, uh, old Mr. Davies, be out mustering the sheep for the shearing and all this sort of thing. And old Murray, parent, they had to get out the shearers' quarters. Yeah. So he said, he said the old woman can cook for you. He said that, so they shifted into rooms up at the homestead, and then he started helping uh, Mr. Davies from there on mustering and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and well, that's how the rabbit trapping went away. <laughs> he went on until the day, yeah, when Mr. Davies passed away, and that's when Murray and them shifted, didn't they? Yeah. He didn't stay no. either. In fact, all of the staff, when it changed hands, mm. left. Yeah. You're still living in the area. You've seen Mundani change hands yep. twice since then so the university had it for a number of years and now the Sparks family have Mundani. From outside looking in the changes that have happened what's your take on the historical nature of Mundani and where it is today? Well this just what Do you I think c- John would be proud? No. That's right. No he he wouldn't be into all this just cereal growing. He was a stockman. Yep. He loved his loosen country and uh, yeah no he had to turn over in his grave i reckon if he'd seen it today Mm. yeah just turned into farming so john never cropped mundani during his time you don't have it only what only what we did around the road uh, he had one set block (laughs) and (laughs) you planted so many acres of oats and for sheaved hay for the feed chair Cattle oh, in so that. he only grew crops for, for feed for, for and stock. a bit of grain, okay. and that and that was it. Right. Uh, but then we put out. We started off. I think that's why all the hair's gone. He <laughs> had thousands of bags of super. Oh yeah, in the shearing shed, stacked in there. It'd been that there that long that the bags were rotting. Mm. You know what I mean? And of course, we had the job of spreading all this all over the damn country and sowing all the Not right, right. Loosome Loosome, country, yeah. all that sort of thing. Yeah. And we're never out of work like with him. He, always, he Actually, he was the backbone of our business right. at that stage. We found him a very lovely old gentleman. Sounded like you had an ideal employer. Oh, yeah. yeah You'd good. never strike another man like no. it. No. No. He was good. Next door to Mundani is a property called Highlands, where the Somerville family live. Marilyn Worman, I live at Bulele East and I grew up at Highlands at Spalding. I've lived here all my life. I'm Eric Somerville. I'm Aileen Robinson. I live in Jamestown now. I grew up in Highlands. There's two memories that do stand out. One is... Saturday nights in his office watching TV. Always the ABC because John Davies wouldn't watch anything apart from the ABC because it might have had one of those bra ads on or something. <laughs> so you wouldn't do that. And what I remember watching is Top Cat. <laughs> I can't remember anything else, but we watched Top Cat. And the other memory I have is um, we used to go with him sometimes as kids, to open the gate for him. 
while he did his, his run. So he had some short wheelbase willies jeeps, I think they were, yeah. with a canvas top. We'd unlock the gates and drive through and shut them. And, uh, so that was obviously school holidays or weekends. So as a young boy, what was your opinion of him? Oh, nice man. Quiet. Yes, just just a nice man. Mm. Marilyn, you're a bit older than Eric. How much older than Eric are you? Seven years. Seven years. <laughs> <laughs> so your memories of, of J.S. Davies, did you have a little bit more to do with him? I probably did. Um, we used to go up every, every weekend because... And we used to ride a bike and a horse up there and um, we used to go back at night on a Saturday to watch TV. He had the first TV in the district and he had the best reception. Oh, did he? Why yeah. is that? Because he's up on the hill, you see, and he had that big antenna and he had his own generators out the back, so he had lots of power. But he was always a very nice man. Considering you were next-door neighbours... What was the relationship like between your family and the Davies? Very good. We used to shear, take our sheep up there to shear. At the end of their shearing, we'd take our sheep up there and use his shed. We used to shear over there and we used to go back and help them dip. Can you remember that, yep. Eric? Yeah, they mm. used to bring their sheep in. So ours went through afterwards. Yeah, we did things like that. But I think in early days, Dad would have helped them a bit. Yeah, I've got Dad's old diaries... Reading them, it appears like he was friends with John, Reg and Hartley. Even though they would have been older than him when he came up here, it, it reads like they were reasonably good friends. Did your dad ever talk about when Hartley passed away or was killed in that train accident? Yeah, because his name was Hartley Eric and I think I was named after him. That was the impression I got from Mum. Dad obviously named me. That's one of the things that sort of indicates that they were reasonably good friends. How was John considered in the Spalding community? I mean, was he well respected? Yes, very well respected. He was the um, chairman of the council for quite a few years. And I can remember the council was running out of money, so he decided he'd have his yard all fixed up so that they, the council got some money. But, yeah, he was pretty... Oh, like when we built the sheds and that, you know, they, oh, they'd ask, is there any new improvements out there? And he'd say no. I was on council for a while and that's certainly the feedback I got that John Davis would say, no, no, we're, we're quite all right up here in the north. <laughs> and he would have no complaints. <laughs> was John Davies, even though he seemed like he was a wealthy man, was he quite frugal? Yes. Never wasted money. Well, he used to... Con- be concerned whether he could afford to put in a mile of fencing on a station. How do you know that? He'd go up there and he'd be in the office working it out. Oh, so this is when you've gone to visit him in the homestead and he's busily checking the books to see whether he can put a mile of fencing in. Definitely. Well, no, to check the books, they're in a pile on the table like this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, his accountant used to come up to him fairly often, you know, Mr Patching. Can't you remember that? Yeah, no, he, was, uh, he used to come up. I suppose it'd be once every three months and take a heap of books back and bring them back again, yeah. But no, he didn't ever waste any money. The only thing he spent money on was dud cattle. Oh, he went to Scotland once to get a 
Roan heifer, I think it was, and we all yeah, had to go over and look at this Numerous thing. cattle. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That's where he spent his money on buying stud cattle. Did you just used to waltz on over whenever you felt like it or were you invited? Oh, yes. No. Oh, we just went over like it was... <laughs> we just home. Us. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. If we didn't turn up, he'd wonder where we were. Well, and you'd then, go and check the eggs. Well, that was about an acre of chook yard. And uh, uh, you always be, had turkeys. Yeah. That'd be more Murray Malloy, wouldn't it? Mur- See, Murray Malloy was more than just a... I don't know how you describe him. Like he... He was Part his, of the establishment. Yeah, but he was more like his personal assistants, his uh, compatriot. You know, there wouldn't have been anything that wouldn't have gone past him when they first started. And there were only a few people working there. I mean, I can only remember Ray Clark and Moss he, Hallett. See, um, in the early days, it was just Murray Malloy and the two men down at the cattle. And yes, that's before me. Yeah. There's and who were the two men down by the cattle? Arthur uh, Vivian and Jack Mullins. Arthur Vivian was the one that sorted out uh, all the studs and Jack did all the other bits and pieces. And, and Jack Mullins, when he retired, lived in a little house on the road there. He would have passed it till the day he died. And he was buried in Spalding. And he was just allowed to live there. Yeah. Tell me about the homestead. What was it, what was it like back in those days? It wasn't in its glory days like Dad remembered. He can remember all the cream carpets and all the furniture. And he obviously must have had meals up there because he knew what was in the dining room and that. We but had Christmas lunch there one day. Oh, I can't remember that. Yeah, <laughs> it was the works. Turkey, pudding. And it was, in the, it was in the dining room. Big dining room, yes. they just installed that new big double electric oven so they could cook. Two things at once, I suppose, but that was um, probably between ten and fifteen that we did that. It was full on, like mm. it was a real British Christmas. Yes. <laughs> so when we get back to the frugal bit, before power came through, he installed two big Lister diesels. So if you turned a light on at night, one the little one would crank up, and as more was required, the big one would crank up. And they were there for a long time and that meant he converted his house over to 240 volt. So, you know, like, he, it wasn't no man's land. He, mm. he did spend money. It was a bachelor's house. He didn't have the frills. Marilyn, I understand you invited him to your wedding. Yes. Um, he had a, it was a Dodge Phoenix, like, being very friendly, and I said to him... Could I borrow your car for my wedding? He said, yes, but he said, I won't drive it. I'll get Mr Malloy to drive it. And he didn't come to my wedding, but he gave me a substantial check. And I don't think he used the car for anything else. No one else got to use it. Is that the one with the cushy car seats? Yes, Yes, it would have been. Goes along like this. (laughs) (laughs) He took us to the Melrose show once. So I I don't know. I I can remember going. I don't know. I can't. like I said, I, I can only remember small things, but he was always there. Yeah. So how old were you when he passed away? Fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah, mm. that's what I mean. It's, it's young memories. What did John do in his spare time when he wasn't dealing with cattle? I really don't know, but I can remember down in the drawing room was a lot of watercolours and that that he had done. Do you think he was lonely? He had no family and 
Yeah, bye. That didn't come across to me as being a lonely no, man, but... Yeah. He was a quiet man. I think yeah. that was his life. Yeah. Loved his animals. Yes, like his stud cattle were just his pride and joy. Yeah. And his stud herefords, stud shorthorns, stud border esters. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure about sheep. <laughs> no, they were the, they were the necessity. Were <laughs> and he had three Highland cattle in the front paddock of the house. And I can always remember them being there. Look, Spalding would remember John Davies as basically being the councillor for North yep. Ward. Mm. Yes. And that he a used to have a, an annual bull sale here. So, yeah, the bull sales were, were big. Yeah. Like Sir Edric Hayward. Hayward, yeah. Hayward. Silverton started in Adelaide Hills. He used to come up in his rolls and park there and buy the bulls. So it was a highlight for the year it, for it the Spalding community. Spalding. It was mm. big. The Red mm. Cross used to cater for it in the shearing shed and there'd be hundreds there. He used to give a lot of money to the Red Cross. The drinks shed that the ladies used to run, the Red Cross, was actually the last container that the bulls came out in. So, you know, like it was a, a wooden, big wooden box and they still eat drinks out of it. John Davies loved his cattle. That was very clear. And as mentioned earlier, he established the Mundani Beef Shorthorn Stud back in 1927, which quickly became quite prominent, winning championship awards at the Royal Adelaide Show from 1927 to 1935. In 1927, Mr Davies started to import sires and high-quality females from the famous Calrossi Stud in northern Scotland. He did this for 30 years. This foresight changed the makeup of the beef shorthorn industry in Australia. Tom Ashby, a farmer from Bundalear, 50 k's north of Clare in South Australia. We run the Bundalear Shorthorn Stud and the North Ash Rose Moreno Stud. Tom Ashby knows the history well, even though he was only five years old at the time when he first met Mr Davies. But as he grew up, he learnt about the significance of the person and the place, as it played a major part in his own family's legacy. Well, Alan, well, I probably only met him the once that I can really remember, and it was, um, I was with my grandfather and father. Um, the Ashby family had property both sides of Mundani, um, on the east side of the Mundani range and the west side. We lived on the west side, and we travelled past Mundani regularly all the time to go to my grandfather's brother's properties. And um, my grandfather was a very close friend of John Davies and we were travelling there one day and I was very, very young, um, standing in, on the front seat of the ute between Graham and, and TE. We stopped on the road to chat to an old man and I had no idea really who this bloke was but he was the owner of Mundani, John Davies. It seemed like we were there for about an hour and they talked about everything from the weather to cattle to sheep, prices, what's, what's happening on the farm and everything else. I guess at the time I didn't didn't think much about it. As a young boy, I didn't really know the significance of, of the person we were talking to on the road. But in latter years, I was always um, fond of the stories that my grandfather and father had told me about John Davies and um, how, he, how important he was to the cattle industry itself and, and how big and significant Mundani was. So what stories can you recall? Well, I guess it was mainly around um, his Hereford and Shorthorn studs and his, and his Merino flock, which wasn't a stud, it was just run commercially, but he had a big Merino flock and, 
and the Ashby family supplied him rams for a lot of years, so they did have a lot to do with him. And it was also around his um, annual production sale of his females, and he also sold bulls at that sale as well. I, I guess the stories were how John Davies was so passionate about breeding his cattle and how good he was at doing it. Um, he supplied a lot of bulls to the pastoral industry of South Australia, and, and that's why in 1944, my grandfather started a, a short horn stud himself at Bundalir. Inspired by... I J. guess inspired Davies. by, by yeah. John Davies and, and other people that, that um, he'd been mixing with in those sort of circles through the mid-north. Yeah, so the stud was started and we started with some foundation females from John Davies' production sale. And those foundation females are still in the Bundalier herd today and are still very prevalent and some of the, the top um, genetics come from those female lines. So before we talk about that, we need to take a step back and talk about the significance of this shorthorn stud. Can we take a step back as to how this stud was developed in the first place? I guess the significance was that um, John Davies had a great connection with um, the Cal Rossi stud in Scotland. He was instigator of bringing live animals, uh, females and bulls, to Australia uh, to improve the shorthorn herd of Australia. This continued right through until the early 50s and there were some really significant bulls that came out. I'm not sure whether John Davies travelled to England, selected the animals and then came back or whether they, there was no emails and Did it over photos telegram. Or, yeah, did it over <laughs> telegram or who knows how it happened but, you know, they were put on ships in England and sailed to Australia. I'm sure that probably took around three months. There was one cow Rossi bull that came out that actually ended up on our place. We, we bought him from Mundani once he got out here. And the progeny of these cow Rossi bulls virtually went right through the Australian shorthorn herds. So it was very significant. The genetics were spread far and wide and mainly into New South Wales studs and Victorian studs, but also into South Australia. In 1989, my father was asked to judge at the uh, Royal Edinburgh Show and Cal Rossi was still fairly significant then and um, he would have judged Cal Rossi cattle in that show. And he went and visited Cal Rossi and got to know John McGillgray, who was the son of Captain John McGillgray, who um, Captain John McGillgray would have been the, the person that was in originally, charge of Cal Rossi. Yeah. And originally sold the bulls and to he, John Davies. That's correct. He, he would have been the person that sold the bulls to John Davies and he was probably the the main instigator of, um, of the great genetics that he'd bred there in Scotland, which influenced the whole Australian herd, really. Then in 2012, I was lucky enough to go to France for a World Merino Conference, and while being so close to England, um, my wife and I thought well, we better jump across the ditch and have a look at England, um, because there was a herd in England that had bought some genetics office, and there was also a herd in Scotland, up near Tain, unbeknown to me, which was only three, three miles away from Cal Rossi itself, that had bought um, genetics from Bundalir as well. So we went to visit these two properties in England and Scotland to see the, the Bundalir progeny back on, on home soil, I suppose. So while we were at this place, and, and, we're, and we didn't even know that um, we were this close to Cal Rossi, so uh, we are with um, the Scott family, at Tane, and um, he said, would you like to go and meet Mr McGillgray from Cal Rossi? And we said, yes, which was really good because um, 
John McGillgray had married a Australian wife who was about 10 years younger than him and um, she was really pleased to meet some Australians and we had a really great chat. But John McGillgray himself was, was quite old at the time in a wheelchair and, and didn't, he remembered my father but didn't have a lot of conversation with us. Um, he was quite old. Uh, and Cal Rossi then had, obviously, there was no children to leave it to. It had really sort of run down and, mm. and there wasn't too much left of it. It was a bit sad. Yeah. Considering the legacy. Huge legacy. You mentioned the production sales that John Davies had on a yearly basis. They obviously were quite an event. Probably a highlight on the event calendar in the Mid-North. Would, would that be fair to say? Yes, yeah, they were a huge event. I, I, I would say it would have been 250 to 300 people at some of those production sales. I'm sure the sporting local people would remember them well. I think, you know, there was people that travelled from all over Australia to those sales, particularly in the 50s and 60s when Mundani was really up and going and winning prizes at the Adelaide Show. And uh, yeah, they were, they were quite a significant start and, and um, a, a big influence on both the Hereford breed and the Shorthorns, but, but more the Shorthorns, I think. So when you say significant start, I mean, how big was the stud altogether? Well, I, I don't really know the herd size, but, you know, going back through some of these old history books that I've got here. Yeah, oh, I these history it, books. Yeah. You know, I was going through some cupboards when you first alerted me to this interview. Went through some cupboards in the kitchen and I'm sure my grandfather wasn't a hoarder, but <laughs> they didn't have computers in those days and the amount of records that he kept was incredible. And um, these old short on inventory books they they just have so much information in them um, of the early years of the short on breed and i guess it tells you where the progeny or where the actual cattle were distributed to so it, you know how far and wide it went it does it, it shows where the mundani cattle were sold um who purchased them unfortunately it doesn't have a price in there of what price they were purchased at but uh, just the influence of all the other studs that are still going in australia that that did purchase mundani genetics and then Late 80s, early 90s, Australia started importing bulls um, and semen out of America. And I'm not sure, I never traced the the pedigrees back far enough, but I'm sure that there were Cal Rossi bulls that went to America as well. So therefore, you know, Cal Rossi was was huge worldwide on the the short-on breed. So what Cal Rossi significance do you have left on Bundalia? Some of the significant families that we bought from Mundani, um, being the Augusta family, the Carnation, the Duchess, Derrimut and Gracie families and the Princess Joan family are probably still our best female family lines and, and they all go back to these Cal Rossi genetics. They're our, our probably highest quality cows still mm-hmm. um, and you can trace their genetics, their pedigrees right back to those Cal Rossi bulls. The shorthorn um, industry at the moment, what's the current state of that industry? Very prominent because um, the, the shorthorn breed really, like the Merino sheep, were the two most prominent breeds, uh, well, certainly the most prominent cattle breed that built Australia, outback Australia, it was built on shorthorn cattle. And that's why these big shorthorn properties started to supply bulls to the commercial industry outback Australia pretty much and, until the Bosinigus cattle came into Australia. So the Shorthorns have lost a lot of market share through the Bosinigus cattle, the Santa Gertrudis and Brahman and um, everything. But um, really you go up in the Kimberleys and you still see a lot of old Shorthorn cattle up there, cattle with Shorthorn genetics or background in them um, with the Bosinigus over the top of them. The Hereford and Angus cattle probably stayed closer to the coastline. They were, they were sort of 
fair weather cattle, I'd call them, and um, cocky well, doctors. Not tough. Yes, not that's tough right. Yeah, they weren't as tough as the short one, and, and the short one went out back, and the, and the Hereford and Angus stayed where the pastures were greener. Yeah, they they did well there in those those areas, and still do. And but the short one is a bit of a tougher animal, and he survives the heat a bit better. Yeah, I mean you still see a few Angus and, and Hereford out back, but it's it was the short one that actually built Outback Australia. And these big short horn studs that popped up everywhere, um, they service the industry. Why do you think he had Herefords as well? Well, he had horn Herefords. Uh, I reckon it would have been difficult to run the two studs together to keep them separate because um, bulls always fight. But I'm guessing he had the Herefords for that um, more inland coastline type market. And I think, you know, he, he ticked the box both ways then. He, he could cover Outback Australia with his short horns and inland or, or the agricultural areas with, with his Herefords. What were prices like back in those days during the, the 40s and 50s, the cattle prices? I, I would say pretty good. Yeah. And we all know that after the Second World War, Australia, rural industry in Australia was booming pretty much. And, but that was off the strength of, of the wool industry being a pound a pound. And, but the, the cattle were going pretty well then too. I would say a lot of the pastoralists in that time that John Davies was alive, and that's that's why he was so influential. They were buying good genetics, and they had money to buy it with. Yeah, an influential time of Australian breeding, really. Do you think he had sheep because that was something that his father had, and he just kept sheep going as part of its legacy? Yeah, I think Mundani is lends itself to um, grazing with the with the hill range that runs through there which is now full of wind towers i'm not sure what john davies would have thought of that and in fact a lot of it's under crops now yeah a lot of the um when you come away from the the foothills of of the range in the hills there yeah a lot of that's all cropped but there is still a substantial sheep flock there and when john davies passed away there was a manager there for 30 years bob adam and his wife glennie who my father and mother were very good friends with so we visited mundani a lot actually and that's how I got to know Mundani more because um, as I grew up we used to go there for you know for dinner or or the Adams had come across to our place and and we learned more about Mundani through them I suppose than than I did through um, John well I, I really didn't know John Davies apart from that one meeting on the road. John Davies passed away at 79 years of age on Christmas Day 1968. One year before his passing, Jenny Abbott was employed to be his live-in nurse. Hi, Jenny. How are you? Hello, Annabelle. Welcome, welcome to Farrell Flat. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'll, I'll go and put the kettle on and we'll have a hot toddy. Okay, sounds great. Jenny has worked all over the world and came to Clare with some friends on their way back from South Africa. Though she only cared for Mr Davies for 12 months, she's never forgotten the experience at Mundunny. At that time, I was called the private nurse, which these days you'd call it a carer for John Davies. And Gaynor was the housekeeper, and Adair was the Jillaroo. What was your first take of Mundunny when you drove down that driveway? Oh, my goodness, it was like the turn of the century. We thought, oh, goodness me. And when we got inside, it was even worse because it, <laughs> it hadn't been attended to for Oh, for, <laughs> for, for many, many, many moons. And so Gaynor and I were really quite uh, enthusiastic to, to get in there and get things uh, ship-shaped for the men and for us as well. And uh, 
if we touched the curtains, they would just in- disintegrate. <laughs> they had hadn't been touched for many moons, and uh, and we just couldn't wash them. They they just vanished. <laughs> but anyway, we got the place. Oh, we were just so pleased to get into it, and and uh, and Mr. John Davies, he was just an absolute gentleman. He was just the dearest person. We were only there twelve months, or a little bit more than twelve months. But it was a most amazing experience, and we why was it amazing? What was so amazing about it? Uh, 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 the fact that we had a live-in position, and and we were doing something we we just loved. I don't know what it was. It was just incredible. What did you do for uh, John uh, uh, Davies? I naturally always checked and had his medication, so I'd put him to bed, you know, help him to dress, bath him, and cook the meals, and generally just care for him you know put him in his wheelchair and and uh, he was a man of very few words but he was an absolute sweetheart he really was just a very dear person so man of few words did you have any conversations with him we thoroughly enjoyed it because with all the big photos around with all the 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 cattle that they had priced cattle he was very proud of that and uh, so you were there in the late or the mid 60s with him because he died in 1968 on Christmas Day. Did he really? Mm. Yes. Well, we must have been there on Christmas Day. Did he really? Oh, goodness. We would have visited him not long before then. Not, you know, not... Oh, goodness, I didn't realise it was Christmas Day, 68, because we would have been there 67. 1967 we were there. You said he was in a wheelchair and you had to care for him. So oh, was yes. he was he sick or was he just no? Just, he wasn't just he old wasn't, age. No, it was just he was not sick. He was he, he was just the age had got him and uh, and he never ever ever complained. He was a quiet man, but he was he was a dear. He really was. Did you work there full time? Did you have time off? Tell me oh, about that. Oh goodness me! <laughs> what an experience that was. The only time we would have off would be between two and four in the afternoon, and we never had a day off. I don't know why it was like that, but it didn't worry. It didn't worry us. We we loved. Gaina would milk the cow in the morning. That would be her job to milk the cow in the morning, and and then you know we'd get the breakfast, and it was just the same routine every day, like you just like your own home life. <laughs> and, um, uh, tell me about Murray Malloy. That's when things started to unravel for you all was your dealings with him well at first i think he was quite intrigued to think that we were cleaning the place up the the kitchen table was stacked high with all tins of stuff where we we cleared that off eventually and put things where they should go it was really a bachelor's quarters it really really was spruced things up there gave him a bit of a, a, bit of a shock but uh, he, hmm, he was, he was different. <laughs> so tell me what happened. What, um, you were there for a year. Yes. What um, led you to, to leave? Oh, well, oh, that was, it was rather sad, but it was, it was sad and quick. Actually, Gaynor and Adele, they were sisters, and their parents came over from New Zealand to visit. They were staying with my sister who lived in Clare. We said to, to Mr John Davies and to Murray, look, we'd like to be able to visit Gaynor and Adair's parents, they are visiting from New Zealand and we made sure that we had the meal, everything just shipshape and the tablets and the kettle. All, all that was necessary was to press the switch to boil the kettle. That's and all Murray had to do. That's all Murray had to do. 
So we said, you know, cheerio and we'd be back later that evening. When we did come back, my goodness me, I went in to say, make sure that uh, Mr Davies was in bed. Murray would have helped him there. And I uh, went in to say goodnight and was greeted with, well, Murray said, you girls have got to leave. And I thought, oh dear, I'm sure I didn't hear right, but I knew I had. And I said, I'm sorry, uh, was that Mr Davies? He said, well, Murray said, you girls have got to leave. Well, that was an absolute bombshell, but never mind. I, I raced around to Gaynor and I said, Gaynor, well, Murray said that we've got to leave. So we didn't take too long to pack our gear. We packed everything up in our station wagon and we left the next morning. Um, we made sure we uh, said to Mr Davies that, you know, we were, we were sad to do this, but, you know, Murray says that we, we girls have got to go, so we will. And what was Mr Davies like when you left? How was he? Oh, he was very sad. He, 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 you could see that he was in disbelief too. You knew, you knew that he was disappointed. Was he of sound mind back then? Or? He was, he was, but he was such a quiet person and such a, just a lovely, lovely person. And I, I think for some rhyme or reason, Murray just <laughs> had it in for us girls just because we had this two or three hours off in the, on the Sunday afternoon. It wasn't until we came back, Gaylor's sister, Adair, was getting married to my cousin, so we came back for the wedding. Six months later? Could have been six or nine months later. We then were told that uh, Mr John Davies was in hospital, so we went to visit him and he was so, so pleased to see us. We were so thrilled. Uh, he was just, oh, the girls are back, the girls are back. It was quite <laughs> touching that he was thrilled to see us and we were thrilled to see him too. But uh, yes, he was in hospital when we did come back. Jenny then married Leo Abbott in 1976 and Leo uh, started working at Mundunny when the university owned um, the property once J.S. Davies had bequeathed it to uh, the university in 1968. But your connection to Mundunny goes a lot deeper than that, I understand. Yeah, it does. Yeah, my mother, she she was there with... Uh, with uh, what's her name, John Davies' uh, father looking after him, and she she was a local girl from uh, Leeton by Boober Alley, and she went to school, the horse and buggy to up to Sporting, and then she after she left school she got a job looking after Mr. John Davies. So this is John Davies Senior. Senior, that's right. And how did you come across this information? It must have been by, by chance. Oh, it was just incredible. We could not believe Leo's mum, mum's reply to uh, my friends and I that uh, she had also looked after John Davies Jr.'s father, John Davies Sr., in the, in the 1930s. It was just amazing. And uh, so with great excitement... We all went up there. We rang the Adams family. We hadn't ever met them. The Adams family were managing the property on behalf of the university. Yes, that's right. And we rang and she was, she could not believe what we were about to do to come up for the day. She was, she was so welcoming. And we took Leo's mum as well. She remembered the layout of the place. And there was one room that she knew that was... Uh, 
a very special room and I, and I know that John Davies Jr., this room was locked and, and was never to be opened and it appears that that's where his mother, that's, that was like his parents' room. He, he was a man of few words, so other than saying that that room was locked and not to be ever opened, you know. So you went back 30-odd years later. What was the place like, going back down that driveway and seeing it again? Much change? Oh, yes. Oh, it was beautiful. Oh, what the Adams Adams family had done, uh, the managers, uh, it was it was absolutely beautiful. And we were thrilled to have the... Uh, the opportunity to uh, to have this day, a very special day. Following Mr John Davies' death on December 25th, 1968, the University and Prince Alfred College took ownership. The will of Mr Davies directed the properties to be carried for 20 years and the income used to promote research into improving the quality of cattle, especially beef-producing animals. It was also specified that the properties could be sold in 1989 or continued on. The university held on to Mundani and Morolana for 42 years, but the cattle were sold in the 1990s. Ian Bidstrip was the farm manager of Martindale at Montero, a property donated to the uni by the Mortlock family. But he also took over the J.S. Davies estate in 1992. My my understanding is is the recollections of what people have told me, uh, people who are intimately involved, Bob Adam and his wife Glennis, who were on the ground from 1969 onwards and developed the uh, uh, Mundani property and the Morlana property. Bob was the uh, general manager of the Davies estate. Baggett's were the trustee of that estate. And so Bob, living at Mundani, was the manager there, the overall manager of the Morolana property, whose manager was John uh, Dobbs, John uh, Dobbs, whose father had previously managed the Morolana property for John Davies. There was a lot of uh, a lot of history, particularly at uh, Morolana, of uh, of management on behalf of John Davies. What was stipulated in the guidelines that the university had to adhere to as part of what J. S. Davies wanted? My understanding is the will of John Davies that the properties had to be managed commercially as a farming operation for at least 20 years and Baggett's as the trustees had to adhere to that. But the university had it for longer than that. It was over for 40 years. In yes, the well what happened was uh, towards the end of the 20-year uh, tenure of the Baggett's uh, trusteeship, the general manager of Martindale Holdings, Ray Norton, was involved in improving the management of the Davies estate, particularly at Mundani, whereby we did a lot of, or he did, in, institute a lot of development in cropping, pasture renovation, application of uh, fertilisers, contouring, and getting machinery that was more suitable for the uh, cropping regime that we were implementing there, or, or he was impl- implementing there on behalf of the university. Did Mundani get transformed into a more of a cropping property uh, after that 20-year tenure or did Bob Adam also transform it into a cropping property as well as livestock? Yes, well, uh, up to a point, but Bob was very uh, interested and good at livestock management and that's what John Davies was particularly interested in. So Bob continued that, continued the management of the uh, 
of the sheep flock and uh, in particular the uh, Hereford and Shorthorn cattle herds. So why did the university, why was there a decision made to get out of cattle? I think I think the uh, cattle were sold in about the early 90s and that was about the time that uh, the cropping uh, program was ramping up on the property and the cattle were economically not productive. There was a lot more money made out of sheep and out of cropping. On behalf of the beneficiaries who were interested in income, the cattle herd was let go. Were you around at that point? I was, but I wasn't intimately involved with it. I was involved at Martindale. I knew what was going on. And in 1992, I was uh, appointed operations manager, and then I became more involved with the Davies estate as well as my role at Martindale. Tom Ashby recalls the time the cattle were sold at Mundunny. He describes it as quite a significant and sentimental event. And at the very last production sale, um, my father, sentimental more than anything, bought five Horn Hereford cows and they came back to Bundalir and we were all pure shorthorns at Bundalir and we could never work out why Graham bought them. But I guess it was just sentimental. He had to have some part of Mundani. And they were there for about oh, three years and we thought, we don't need these cattle. They got sold again. <laughs> they just didn't look right at, Bund- at Bundalia. <laughs> so I can imagine that last production sale would have been huge. It was huge. Um, yeah, it was a big event. And um, yeah, people again from all over the country, um, you know, outback, Flinders Ranges, northern South Australia, the big pastoralists came down and um, um, interstate people as well. Uh, so, yeah, it was a big event and uh, it was, was probably pretty sad to see it all go. I bet mm. John Davies was turning in his grave. I'd imagine so, yeah, yeah. But um, that's what happens when, um, I guess, boards take over and, and yeah. um, decisions are made to, to run the place as profitable as you can. Yep. And um, I guess the cattle, when you look at it, um, they were, there were two cattle studs and it took a lot of staff to run them. And I guess labour was getting dearer too, and, and the boards would have looked at that and said, maybe something's got to go here, something's got to give this good cropping country. Um, and and the rainfall was there. It was good rainfall at Mundani, so the, the crops were thriving. So they were, they were making money out of growing wheat and barley um, yep. initially, and, and maybe the, the cattle had to make way for that. Once the cattle were sold, Mundani became a fully-fledged cropping and sheep-producing property. Ian Bidstrip again. The productivity of the property well, was significantly improved, there's no doubt about that, and the business got better uh, machinery, equipment, used better techniques, did contour banking, greater fertiliser inputs, better rotations, so, yeah, it did ramp up considerably. And was the sheep flock increased as well once uh, yeah. the cattle left? Yes, the sheep, the sheep flock was increased. Then it, then it changed uh, towards the, the end of the, the time we were involved, before the sale. We had quite a lot of uh, sheep that were, were mated to uh, British breeds as well because we had a deal going with um, snake venom people at Martindale. It was a wonderful business that, that utilised the resources of the three properties in particular for, for growing uh, uh, sheep. 
suitable for that business. Why wasn't Mundana used as a practical or, fall or, or a formal training ground for Roseworthy students? Because I understand that students didn't come up to Mundani. Well, that's, that's true, and they didn't go to Morolana either. Uh, was that part of the point of having those properties as well? Or? Well, yeah, the, the, the opportunity was there, as, as it was at Martindale, and it was only in the very late, late uh, years of my involvement with Martindale and, uh, that, that any students ever came up. Well, we flew the flag many times, but it didn't seem to, didn't seem to work for them. Was it, were we given any reason, or was no. they just had the facilities at Roseworthy and there was no need for them to come? I think that I think that's the case as well. Yeah, but we did have some students from Marcus Oldham who took advantage of what we had there. They'd come and live there for twelve months as part of their course, so that was very useful. In your view, do you think that Mundani was used to the best of its ability? It was used to the best of its ability in terms of productivity, agricultural productivity. But all the places didn't ever get used sufficiently or at all, uh, or very well, for activities for, for students to learn the game that they were studying. The university sold Mundani, Morolana and Martindale in 2010 and 2011. This decision was met with a mixed reaction from the public and also those within the university fraternity. Ian Bidstrip says over the 30 years he was involved... The university tried many times to sell the properties. Even to this day, he still believes it was a poor decision. Well, I was very disappointed because I'd spent, invested 30 years of my life developing three wonderful properties. And the properties were very well developed when, when they put them up for sale. And uh, so that was a disappointing thing because we we're all working, all the managers, including me, were working towards handing over something for an ongoing benefit of the university and, and the weight. When was Morolana and Mundani sold? Morolana, I think, was sold in the, towards the end of 2010. Uh, it was put up for auction at Hawker and there was no bid and then it was sold privately for, I think, $2.4 million. And then how many years later? It sold for quite well, a lot sold, more than that. Sold, sold again, you know, six years later maybe for... Uh, Six million plus, and Mundani was sold for approximately twenty million. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. Mm. Prince Alfred College had a small stake. Yes, they had. And this is well. Did they want to sell? Did they want? Did they have an opinion on all of this? Well, any time, uh, to my recollection, any time the university floated the boat about selling, PAC were adamant they did not want to sell their their share without their agreement. It couldn't be sold. Both parties had to agree to sell. Eventually, uh, they did. They agreed. The university reinvested the proceeds into world-class teaching and research facilities for agriculture and animal science. One of those facilities was the Davies Livestock Research Centre. It was built at the Roseworthy campus in 2000. The centre's director is Professor Wayne Pitchford. He says the sale eventuated as the long-term returns on agriculture just weren't what they were a few generations earlier. The, the returns on capital were low. I mean, the capital values in agriculture are very, very high. Seasonal variations very high. Any farmers know this. And uh, uh, return on capital is not that high. And usually the returns that you have, you want to be putting them back into the property to keep improving the property. And so... 
when you've got a university that's got an asset like that where you actually need to be able to use the funds not just to maintain the properties but to be able to generate profit to be able to do good to the broader university activities you know for a family farm to be able to invest back in the farm is fine but for the university to be able to put all the investment back into the farm it just doesn't work because then you don't have any return or any value coming from that asset. At the time of the sale, Professor Pitchford was also against it. I spent lots of time out in the bush talking to people about it, and uh, what was I, the general reaction? Oh, the reaction was bad. Like you was just it? know that. Yeah, yeah, look, that's one of the reasons I want to do this podcast is to be able to get a message out there about how things are actually being used now. I could never defend the university. I didn't actually support it at the time. Why not? Um, because I just felt like um, the legacy that had been left. Uh, and the message that it would send to people about how the university uses bequest funds, I just thought they were all negative. At the moment, my view now is that I'm pretty pleased to say I reckon I was wrong. Tell us what has happened in that time then that has changed the way that you think that you were wrong. Yeah, so the the money is, has been conservatively invested and it must be primarily in shares because I can see the value of it sort of pretty much tracks the share market. Mundani sold for $20 million in in 2011. The total value of the bequest is now $40 million. And so that's a substantial amount of money. That's absolutely quarantined. The other bequest money is is invested in a similar way, but it's very carefully quarantined and maintained. And the university is extremely um, diligent in managing bequests based on the terms of their bequest. So when you say quarantine, that means it's not touched? It's not touched unless there is an absolute need to invest capital in something that's aligned with the terms of the bequest. And then the university may decide to actually to touch some of that funds. And, and that would be appropriate because you're, making, you're still making an investment in, in line with the terms of the bequest. So it's not that they'll never spend the money at all, but they definitely spend the money in line with the terms of the bequest. And then the way that the funds are being used for university activity is that 5% of that money comes to the Davies Livestock Research Centre, which then underpins our research. And we're aiming to leverage that money four to one. Uh, And so not only do we believe that we're doing a good job of using the money on, on appropriate activities, we can talk about some of those, but also we're trying to leverage that money so that the, the money is not being used just to be spent on a project, but is actually having far greater impact than that. So shares that are paying a 5% dividend still continue to grow. So it's not just that we quarantine, but the, actually the capital value will grow over time as well. Let's talk about the Davies Livestock Research Centre, which is where we are sitting in now at the Roseworthy campus. Was this built following the sale of the properties? No, it was actually built before the sale. So this building that we're in at the moment on Roseworthy campus uh, was built in 2000. Uh, and that was the time when the Department of Animal Science moved from the Wade Institute to the Roseworthy campus. And the Roseworthy campus joined the university in 1991 There were a number of activities that moved off of the campus. The most high profile of those was the the wine course that moved to the weight. The whole philosophy there was that it was important to have teaching and research be uh, on the one location, be aligned, be intimately uh, together. And so moving animal science out to Roseworthy was still part of that. So it was sort of readdressing the balance of move away from Roseworthy, but it was also about 
building research and teaching programs that are integrated together. And then since that time, we've gone on and developed an animal science degree, uh, the veterinary degree, uh, and then more recently, an animal behaviour degree and a veterinary technology degree. And so now we have over a thousand students on campus, and uh, that's that's more than what they were when it was um, when it was humming as an agricultural college. And what were the numbers back then? Uh, uh, that's a really good question. I think it was in the six or seven hundred, but I'm not certain. Here at the Davies Livestock Research Centre, what have been the major success stories? Well, the the areas of of work we got four program areas of work. So the first one's in wellbeing and health. The second one's in in genetics and breeding. Uh, the the third one in sustainable productivity, and then the last one in meat and wool science. Just some of the programs we've got going on at the moment. We're trying to be able to develop objective measures of animal pain, and you know, there's lots and lots of ways of assessing pain that aren't objective and even if you go to hospital and the first thing you get asked is how much pain you're in my colleagues at work in this area they say always say something greater than five so you get the good drugs but the assessment of pain even in humans is poor and it's a very early area so we're working closely with medical scientists to be able to assess pain in animals and then that what we develop in animals will actually be a model for humans as well Wow, that's, that, good... that's one area. In the genomics area, we're working with, we, we've got one breeding program where all of the bulls that they now use uh, are fully genome sequenced. They've got uh, over 50,000 cows that have been genotyped. And uh, we're making sufficient enough progress to be able to add an additional $6 million per year to that supply chain um, based on the number of animals that, you know, the genetic progress they make and the number of animals that are mated uh, to their bulls. In sustainable productivity, we've got projects that are looking at reducing methane, improving twin lamb survival, improving productivity of beef cattle. And then in meat science, we've got programs working with meat processors, developing, working with them to get objective measures into abattoirs to be able to measure carcass and, and meat quality, predicting the amount of meat on a carcass, predicting later eating quality of that meat. We're doing things like developing optimization programs to guide boning room managers in how carcasses should be boned out to be able to extract the maximum value from those carcasses. And then on the wool side, we're doing something that's had a few goes over time, but we're, uh, uh, we're investing in, in work with uh, Australian Wool Innovations to develop new ways of, of harvesting wool from sheep. So how many people actually work in the centre and how many, what's your student intake at the moment? Uh, that's a really good question. We've got uh, probably 15 to 20 uh, PhD students, about 10 to 15 honours students this year. Uh, the undergraduate students come out of various programs, so it's sort of not appropriate to quote them so much. We have about 120 people on our list, um, but many of those don't spend full time in the centre. They might be teaching uh, staff as well or sort of just have a small project associated with the centre. And then we have a number of other people that... Uh, working for full time in the centre on, on a range of projects. So there's, there's quite a big mix of, of people and the amount of time they spend. If I added up all the full time equivalents, I don't know how many it would add up to. It might be um, it might be 30 people at the moment. Do you think J.S. Davies would be proud of what the university has, has done with the bequest that he left behind? I really hope that he would. One of the things that I'm passionate about is not just about doing good research, but 
actually serving the industry and growing people. And in fact, um, sort of our motto in the centre is to serve industry, grow people and, and do good science. And uh, I think the fact that he left the bequest to a university implicit in that is you've got an organisation that is training young people, developing people, and uh, and, and he, he left it with the terms to for animal improvement, especially beef cattle. And so, you know, the fact that we've got sort of world-leading genetic programs that are improving beef cattle, I think you'd be pretty impressed with some of the work we're doing there. I think that just having things so closely aligned to industry priorities, we work with industry to develop priorities, we use those priorities in the centre, uh, they they guide where we invest the the bequest money and also they guide where we get additional, you know, the money that we leverage from Meat and Livestock Australia and other places as well. We've grown our income, our external income, almost threefold in four years and we're aiming to, to keep doing that. I would hope that he would be quite proud of that trajectory that, that we're working on there. It's been 54 years since John Stanley Davies passed away. A man who left the university a $2 million estate, now it's worth $40 million. A man who improved the genetic lineup of Australia's shorthorn cattle breed. A man who supported local business and community. A gentleman who was quiet, kind and generous. I hope you enjoyed this snapshot of the life of John Stanley Davies and the legacy he left behind. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Adelaide.